How's everyone doing tonight? Thank you. Made it to the last night. Everybody have some good energy in them? Got to get strong tonight. You know, this is the, this is the grand finale. This is the last night, and uh, you guys got to make sure that you uh, bring your A game for every part of us. Y'all get some feedback out there? I need to turn this down a little bit. Is it okay? Okay. Um, then it starts to do that whole fun thing. Uh, JD down here is going to still rescue us. We're closer here for something like that. So go all play in the. Uh, Is that a little better? Okay. Okay. Hopefully that will uh, that will be the trick. Go play in the uh, uh, basketball tournament. Say a few hands. Okay. Who won? I don't even know who who won. Had it first. Mizzou won. Good stuff. Well, this is the last breakout. Have y'all enjoyed the breakout so far? Well, this is the last one that you get to go to. If y'all remember Philip this morning, he talked about an inner faith. There's kind of this upward and inward and outward component. Y'all remember that? Well, if you think about that, the first four breakouts primarily are about the upward and inward. Okay, that's kind of where they've been focusing. This last breakout, all the breakouts number five, all kind of have a little bit of an outward focus. Okay, so that's kind of been the, the method to the madness, if you will. So this one's talking about leadership that leaves a legacy. We're thinking about the outward dimension of our faith and what God would actually want to do uh, through us uh, in an outward sense. Now, let me tell you a little bit about myself. My name's Joel Johnson, and this is a picture of my family. My wife, uh, Jennifer, and I have been married for 20 years. And how many of y'all went to Swipe Right? Okay, over the course, one of your breakouts. Okay, Ryan, we're supposed to be all in here. Well, let me just say this from experience. The principles that Tommy and Rachel described there, they're spot on. Okay, take those to heart. Okay, and just from an experiential standpoint, trying to build your life on the principles that God has for relationships and marriage. Now, I've been reading the dividends of that for 20 years. And it's been amazing to be married to Jim, to really have our marriage and our family kind of built around our faith and, uh, and built around the centrality of Christ. In our life. So take that to heart. We've loved being married for 20 years. We get to raise these two girls together. Uh, my oldest daughter, Ellie, is 13 years old. My youngest daughter, Alexa, is 11. And we actually live in Manhattan, Kansas. Any K-Staters? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we've lived in Manhattan for 23 years now. We get to kind of bounce between all the different campuses. So I get to go and uh, visit KU some. Any uh, Jayhawks in the room? Woo! Kind of bounce around. I, I mentioned my, my two daughters. Uh, you know, I've been having an interesting dialogue with them. Something I've been thinking about personally, um, and I've brought kind of them into the scoop. And it's this question. You'll see this at the top of your handout. I've been trying to think about the difference between success and significance. Okay? And what does it mean to have a life that's successful versus what it means to have a life that's significant? Okay, now those two words are similar, but there's a lot of difference. And this is actually a discussion that I've had with them. It's something I've been thinking about, but I also want you all to consider it uh, for a few minutes as we begin tonight. Now, I want you just to turn to a partner for one minute and answer this question. If you could choose between living a life of success versus a life of significance, which would you choose and why? Sound good? One minute, turn your partner, successful life or significant life? Pull it all back together. Now, somebody's probably a tough question to ask. You know, you always have to define your terms. What do you mean by success? successful life? What do you mean by significant life? And the way that I've been thinking about it, and even talking to my daughters kind of in the early stages of life about it, is I've been encouraging them. I just, I just want them to know, hey, as a dad, you know, you may be successful, you may not. Okay, but what I'm more concerned about for you and your future is that you live a life of significance, okay, rather than merely seek a life to be successful. And here's why I make that distinction, you know, with them. When I think about being successful, okay, in success, the primary focus of success is ourselves, right? And so being successful is asking the question, how can I accomplish great things for myself? That's what success is all about. I've succeeded. I've accomplished something, you know, that I have achieved. You know, I've made it. You know, I've actually uh, brought some accolades to myself. You know, I've brought some, in a sense, glory to myself. Success is primarily about ourselves. 
But if you contrast that with significance, you know, I would argue that significance is primarily about the way we make a difference and help in the lives of others. A significant life, you can't live a significant life if you haven't lived your life in a way that benefits others and helps others and contributes to the good of others. And so I want my daughters, as they grow up, and as they think about their future, and they think about their dreams, and they think about, you know, all that God might have in store for them, you know, success is great. They may be successful. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But I want them to understand that more important than being successful is that they live a life that really has significance. Okay? That really makes a difference in this world. And if you remember this morning, Philip shared a quote. He shared it from Francis Chan, but Francis Chan was actually quoting a guy named D.L. Moody from about 150 years ago. And he was the first one that I know of that said this quote. He said, hey, our greatest fear for all of us shouldn't be a fear of failure in life, but rather we should fear succeeding at something that ultimately doesn't really matter. And if I'm honest with you, that's a fear that I have for my life. And I think that's a fear that I have for you, and I hope it's a fear that you have for your life. Because here's the reality. You all are talented, you're gifted, you're getting a great education at great universities right now. By and large, you all are not going to fail in life, okay? Y'all are going to be successful in life. So the question is not, will I succeed or will I not? But the question is, is will what I succeed in really have any significance? At the end of the day, will it matter? Okay, at the end of my life, will I have no regrets? Can I really say that I gave my life to something that had significance? And is this world a different place? Is this world a better place because of how I channeled my life, my one life, like our theme of the conference here this, uh, this weekend? Okay, we want to live lives that matter, not just lives that are successful. And so as we talk about this topic of leadership, and we think about leadership that leaves a legacy, I don't want you to think of leadership in terms of being successful. Okay, being, well, I get to be a leader. What would it look like for me to be viewed as a leader, treated as a leader, have opportunities as a leader? I want you to think about leadership that really results in a life of significance. Okay, that makes a difference in the lives of others. And I think that's the kind of leadership that the Bible elevates, and that's the kind of leadership that God only wants to produce in every one of our lives. Here. So for the next 45 minutes, I just want to kind of unpack that a little bit. And I want us to think about it. Now, to think about leadership, you've got to begin with a definition. Okay? Now, probably a lot of y'all have leadership studies classes. Some of y'all are maybe pursuing that as a minor or as a major. I've got friends who actually have a PhD in leadership. And yet, in the midst of the conversations that I have with people who take classes or study it or read all the books, what I'm surprised sometimes to find is that even people who study leadership and have hours and hours of credits, when you try to ask them, what it really is it? How do you boil down leadership? I find that oftentimes people have a hard time really understanding what it is. You know, what does it mean to be a leader? What is leadership truly, you know, at the most basic level? And, and I want to kind of start there, kind of give you a foundational working of leadership, a working understanding of leadership, and then we'll kind of unpack it more as God shapes it. So when I think about leadership, ultimately we're talking about influence. Leadership in a word is influence. If you are being a leader, then you are helping influence, you are helping shape, you're helping bring about change, okay, in a certain environment or in a certain context. That's what leadership really is if you boil it down to one word. Now, here's what it's not, but this is oftentimes the way that we think of leadership. Oftentimes, we think of leadership in terms of either position, power, or privilege, okay? Position, power, or privilege. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we think of leadership in the lens of position. So, you think, well, I'm a leader, okay, if I'm the captain of the team. I'm a leader if I'm the president, okay? I'm a leader if I'm the CEO. I'm a leader if I'm on the board of directors. I'm a leader if I'm on exec. You know, and we think of leadership as this sense of position. I'm, a, I'm an officer, okay, or I'm um, the chair of this department or something like that. Sometimes we think of leadership in terms of, of, of position. And it's not that can't correlate with it, but leadership's not primarily a position. Second, sometimes we think of leadership in terms of being powerful or authority. We think, well, if you're the leader, that means you get to call the shots. If you're a leader, you get to make decisions. If you're a leader, you get to hire and fire. You get to set the direction. You get to say, hey, this is where we're going to go. This is what we're not going to do. You get to call the plays, if you will. And we think of leadership in terms of power. And while leadership may have power, it's not primarily about power. Just like it's not primarily about position. Thirdly, sometimes we think of leadership in terms of privileges. 
We think, oh, well, if I'm the leader, then I get to make my own hours. Okay? If I'm the leader, then I get the corner office, you know, with all the windows and the best view. You know, if I'm the leader, then maybe I get unlimited, you know, vacation, you know, in life. Think of all the privileges. Or if I'm the leader, then I get the highest salary, if you will. And most of us, when we think about leadership, we, we put it into one of these three dimensions. It's about my position, or it's about my power, or it's about the privileges that I can have. And again, while some of those things may be aspects of leadership, leadership's not about any of those, okay? Again, leadership is about influence. And if I can kind of boil it down to what is leadership, all leadership begins with a task, okay? When you think about being a leader, it, it assumes that there's some sort of task that we're trying to accomplish, okay? It's bowl season right now, and so you think about football. Okay? The task of a football team is what? Win. Is win the game, right? So you have a leader. You have a coach. Okay? Well, here's what a leader does. A leader's role is to help people accomplish a task. And so a football coach's leadership is to try to help that team at the end of the day win the game. Because that's the task. So leadership is always about helping people accomplish a task. And this is true in any realm of society. Okay, from government to education, you know, leadership is about helping people accomplish a task. Now, when we turn to the Bible and we say, well, what does the Bible have to say about leadership? It's basically the same thing. Okay, except there's just one change. And it's, that, it's not just any task that we're about. So when the Bible describes leadership, it doesn't just begin with an arbitrary task. It begins with the ultimate task. And the ultimate task is God's purpose in our life and God's purpose in our world. And so to be a leader in the way the Bible describes being a leader, it's the same thing. It's helping people to accomplish a task, but it's not just any task. It's helping people to embrace and live God's purpose. And so to be the kind of man or woman that God wants you to be, to be the leader that God wants you to be, it has this desire behind it, this direction behind it that says, hey, I want to help people experience God's purpose for their lives. I want to help people be a part of God's purpose in this world. And so leadership is the attitude, the disposition, the actions, the attitudes, the character that actually helps bring about God's purpose in this world to a greater and greater degree through our actions. Okay? And through our day-to-day -day decisions. And so, in order to understand leadership, we have to determine, well, what is God's purpose? Okay? If leadership's about helping people experience and accomplish God's purpose, then let's back up. What is God's purpose? What is He doing in our world? And we've been hearing about this, you know, over the last three days. We've been understanding a bigger picture of what is God doing in our world. And we're going to hear more about that tonight and tomorrow as well. And if I can summarize what God's doing in our world, I would summarize it with these three words. And I'll unpack them here for you. When I think about what's God's purpose in this world, I would say in summary, he's redeeming this world, he's reorienting this world, and he's restoring this world. Okay, this is what God's doing in our world. He's redeeming it, reorienting it, and restoring it. And here's what I mean by these three terms. The first one, he's redeeming it. To redeem something means that something has been taken captive. Okay? To redeem implies something is under captivity. And redemption means to set something free. It means to rescue something from its captivity. And it's usually at a great cost. Okay? So to redeem something says I'm willing to pay a price in order to set something free from its captivity. That's what the word redemption means. And when we open the Bible, we see this is what God is doing in our world. That our world and all people, all humanity, is under captivity. Okay? And God's whole purpose in this world is to set us free. And he's willing to pay the price in order to do that. Mark 10, 45. Jesus, when he described his purpose, he said this. He said, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. This is a picture of leadership. He said, it's not about me. It's not about success. It's not about what I can get from people, but rather what I can give. See, for Jesus, leadership was about serving and giving his life as a ransom for men. Ransom there means he was going to pay the price, you know, to set us free. He was going to pay the price to redeem us because that's what he's doing in the world. That's what he wants to do in men and women's lives. In Romans 8, Paul kind of says, hey, on a, not just on an individual level, but on a macro level, this is what God wants to do across the globe. 
It says the creation, talking about just the whole universe, it waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now that's a pretty wordy description, but basically what Paul is saying there is he's saying this. He's saying, hey, our world and humanity as we know it is enslaved to decay. Okay, there's a bondage, okay? There's a, there's, a, there's a way that sin is corrupting this world. But God's purpose in this world is to set it free from that corruption. Is to redeem humanity. To redeem men and women from that decay and to bring them into the freedom of God's purpose and God's plan. You see, God wants to redeem this world. He wants to set it free. Okay? But that's not all that God wants to do. He's redeeming this world, but secondly, he's reorienting. Reorient. Reorient means to change direction. Okay? It means you're oriented this way, and now all of a sudden you're changing and you're going this way. And when we look at the Bible, we see that God is reorienting our world. He's not just setting it free from its decay, but he's going to change the direction that this world is going. Matter of fact, the very first words when Jesus came on the scene and he began his ministry said this. He said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, what God is going to do in this world, it starts now. Okay? I'm bringing about God's kingdom into this world. And then the very first statement Jesus said is, he said this. He says, it's time to repent. It's time to repent. Now, repent is an old British military term that basically means an about face. And so you can imagine soldiers who are marching in four, and if the drill sergeant says repent, it means they do this. And they reorient. Their lives were going one direction, and now it's going the other direction. And Jesus says that is what it means to become a Christian. It involves a reorienting of our life. Instead of continuing to live a life that's really self-centered and living for me with our back to God, you know, becoming a Christian involves repenting. They involves saying, hey, I'm not going to live for myself anymore, but I'm going to reorient myself. And now instead of living for myself, I'm going to live for God. Okay? And so not only is God setting us free from our captivity, okay, he's reorienting us. He's giving us a new direction in life. We see the product of this in 1 Peter. And Peter's going to talk about how this changes our lives. He's talking about these people that have recently started following Christ, and notice what he says. He says because of that, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather, so because again, they used to live that way, but he says, but rather, they now live for the will of God. He says, you spent enough time in the past doing what they choose to do. And he says, people are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless way of living. In other words, when you begin to follow Christ, you realize, man, I've been living for myself, and I've been living for sin, I've been living for this for so many years. And I just realize how confused. Okay? And there's a reorienting that says, hey, I, I now want to live for the will of God. That's doesn't mean we still don't struggle with those things. There's a change of direction. And that's what God wants to accomplish, not just in our lives individually, but in our world. He wants to redeem this world, but he also wants to reorient it. And then thirdly, and lastly, he's not just redeeming it, reorienting it, but he's also restoring it. He's restoring it. To restore something, think about anyone's ever restored a car, what are they doing? It's like they're making it new again. You know, they're actually making it better than it was when it was new. I had a neighbor that all my life was always restoring cars. And he would take this pile of junk that was just rusted and falling apart and give him a year and turn it into something that was amazing. You know, it was cooler than it was when it was brand new. And when we look at the Bible, we see that is exactly what God wants to do in our world. He's committed to restoring it. Okay? Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Paul said this about our lives individually. We've taken off our old self and his practices and we've put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. See, here's this picture of God wanting to restore us. He's wanting to renew you. He's wanting to make you back into his image, which is how he created you to be. Okay? God wants to restore our lives. And then he gets to the very end of the Bible. Okay? He gets to the end of the Bible, which is talking about the future. He's talking about what is God going to do at the end of the day? And in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, it paints a picture of a world that's actually restored. And notice what God says we're going to see someday. 
He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the older order of things has passed away. And the one who's seated on the throne, that's, that's Jesus, he's the king. The one who's seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. I'm making everything new. Do you see his commitment to restoring this world? Can you imagine a world without pain? Can you imagine a world without suffering? Can you imagine a world without regret? Without injustice? Without deception? Without hurt? Without wrong? You see, we can't imagine that because we've never known it. We've never experienced it. But what God is saying here is ultimately, that's the direction this is going. That's the end game. Okay? And he's constantly working towards that end. He's redeeming our world. He's reorienting our world. And ultimately, he's going to restore that world. Okay? He's not just going to make it like new. He's going to make it better than new. Okay, and we, we have a basic understanding of what this could be, even though we don't understand it in our world, because we've probably, most of us, have watched some sort of HGTV show, show right? I mean, y'all seen, like, Fixer Up or something like that. See, these shows are all about restoration, right? In some ways, they're about all three. They're about redemption, reorienting, reorienting you know, and they're about restoring. And so here's Chip and Joe, for example. This is some before and afters from some of the show Fixer Up. Okay, here was a living room. They bought this house, you know, pennies on the dime. And uh, after about six months, here's what it turned into. Okay, they take something that's decaying. They take something that's falling apart, right? And they buy it. It comes at a cost. Okay, that's redeeming. Okay, then they reorient. What do they do? They come up with a new plan. We're going to move this wall. We're going to move this window. Okay, we're going to take off the old frame, you know, this wall or the old sheetrock or the old brick or something like that. They reorient. They come up with a new direction for that room. And then what do they do? They restore it. They make it like new. Remember, they make it better than new. So they'll take a living room that looks like this and they'll turn it into something that looks like this. Or they'll take an entryway living room that looks like the one on top. And they redeem it, reorient it, and restore it. And it looks like the one in the bottom. Or they take a, an old barn like this that someone wants to turn into their home. They purchase it. They come up with a new plan for it. They restore it. And it looks like the picture in the bottom. And then here's another last one. Uh, kitchen, dining room, entryway. It's redeemed. It's reoriented. And it's restored. And you see the product. Okay? And this, in a sense... It's just a small picture and metaphor of exactly what God wants to do in each of our lives individually and in our world. Okay? This is who God is. He's in the process of taking this world, redeeming it, reorienting it, and restoring it. And here's the point. Here's the connection to leadership. Okay? It's not just that God's doing that in our world. But the fourth thing that we've got to understand is that he wants to use us. He wants to use us. He's inviting us in to this process, into this mission of redeeming this world, reorienting it, and restoring it. You know, this is another passage that Philip mentioned this morning. He says, you know, God is not just working in us, but God invites us to join him in his work in the world, Ephesians 2, 10 says. We get to be a part of what God is doing. Later on, some of Jesus' last words to his disciples, he told them this. He said, hey, the same way or the same purpose that God sent me into the world, I'm sending you all into the world. You see, God sent Jesus into this world to redeem it, to reorient it, and to restore it. And Jesus says, I'm sending you into this world to do the exact same thing. You're an extension of my mission to redeem this world, reorient this world, and restore this world. And as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And so all of us get to be a part of this. See, this is leadership that really matters. This is leadership that leaves a legacy, okay? And when we think about this picture, hopefully this is something you want to be a part of. The more you get to know God, the more you realize how amazing this is and that there's no greater purpose in this. And you say, God, what does it take? I want to be that kind of leader. 
I don't just want to be successful in life. I want to be significant with your purpose in mind. How do I be a part of that? How do I be that kind of school teacher? How do I be that kind of businessman? How do I be that type, you know, of doctor or lawyer? How do I be that kind of financial planner? That regardless of my career and my job and my family and my community, this is what I'm about. This is my purpose. Okay? I want to be significant more than I just want to be successful. Now, the next section on your handout, I'm just going to kind of zip through really quick. But I want to give you some qualities. You know, because the people that I see God use in his plan of redeeming and reorienting and restoring the world, there's some characteristics of them. Okay, there's some things that the Bible says, this is the kind of man or woman that God uses, you know, to bring about this hope and this justice and this healing and this restoration in our world. There's qualities that correlate with the people that God uses. Let me just mention them quickly. First of all, they have a hunger to know God. Men and women that God use, they really want to know God. They really have a hunger for Him. Daniel 11, 32, the people who know their God, they display strength to take action. When you know God, you get after it. Okay? Because that's who He is. That's what He's doing. You want to be a part of the action. You want to be a part of His purposes. So people that God uses, they know Him. Second of all, they have hearts devoted to Him. They have hearts devoted to. Have you ever thought about what catches God's eye? Guys, over the last three days, has there been any lady here at SMC that's caught your eye? Yes, there has. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, have there been any guys over the last three days that's caught your eye? They're probably asking. They're probably asking. Okay, you know, when we're around here, something catches our eye about it, right? People catch your eye. There's something you notice. Well, think about this. What do you think it is that catches God's eye? When God's looking to use people to accomplish His purpose, what do you think it is that catches His eye? What do you think makes Him say, well, what about her? Or what about Him? I could use Him. Man, I can really use her. On that team, on that dorm, in that house, on their family, among their friends. What is it that catches God's eye? 2 Chronicles 16, 9 tells us. See, it says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. You see, the man or woman that catches God's eye is the man or woman who has a heart devoted to him. God says, that's the kind of person I want to come alongside. I want to support them. I want to strengthen them. I want to encourage them. I want to work with them. That word in Hebrew means there. That's translated here, strongly support. It's God saying, hey, that's the kind of person that I use to bring about my purposes in this world. Thirdly, they're selfless and sacrificial. Men and women that God uses are selfless and sacrificial. And this just, this just intuitively makes sense, right? People who uh, want to be successful, it's all about them. People who want to lead in a way that's significant, it's not about them. They're selfless. They're sacrificial. It's about others. Right? That's why they're in this. Okay? John 12, 24. Jesus even said this. He says, hey, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And what Jesus is trying to teach us here, he says, hey, your life, just like a, a seed, okay, will only have influence, will only leave a legacy if you're willing to be like a seed that falls to the ground and dies. Be selfless and sacrificial. That's the kind of man or woman that has leadership that leaves a legacy. And really impacts the lives of others. Fourthly, they have compassion for the sake of others. You see, leaders who leave a legacy, they actually give a rip about people. Okay? They see the condition that people are in, they see their circumstances, and there's a compassion that it generates. There's a desire to say, hey, that's not right. Something needs to change. There's something better out there for them. If we don't have compassion for people, then we don't want to be a part of God's plan to redeem, reorient, restore the world. Okay, we need to see people how they really are. Because only then do we see how much they need God and how much God really has to offer them. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Leaders who leave a legacy have compassion on people. Fifthly, they have the courage to take a stand. 
When I think about men and women who have left the legacy whose lives have been significantly used by God, they've got backbone. They're willing to stand up for what's right, even if no one else is standing. And I just want to ask you, you know, have you come to that place where you've kind of, in a sense, drawn a line in the sand and just said, you know what, I'm going to do what's right, and I don't care what anyone else does. And then you come to the place where it's like, man, God, I want to honor you, and that's all that matters. That may bring some pushback into your life. But you'll be surprised at how much it also brings respect from others in your life. And the whole thing brings the favor of God. First Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says this. He says, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor of the Lord is not in vain. Paul says, hey, if you are going to be a leader that leads a legacy, you're going to have to stand firm. Okay, you're going to have to have backbone. You're going to have to have conviction. Okay, this is one of those indispensable qualities. Sixthly, people that God uses, they take initiative to influence others. They take initiative to influence others. You know, leadership that makes a difference in the lives of others, it can be passive. Okay? You don't have to be the smartest, most gifted, you know, most extroverted. You know, those things don't matter. But you can't be passive. You have to be willing to take the initiative in the lives of others. Paul in Acts 20, 24 talked about kind of his life being compared to running a race. He compared his leadership to running a race. When Paul talks about having influence and being a leader, he often uses athletic and racing type metaphors. The point is it takes a lot of initiative. Okay, into the lives of people. Leaders that leave a legacy are men with an initiative. And then lastly, when I think about people that God used, they have perseverance to stay the course. You know, over the years, and I've been walking with God for about 27 years now, when I think of all the men and women whose lives have really left a significant legacy, one of the things that's always true of them is they just don't throw them in the towel. Again, we tend to think, oh, a leader's got to be this, got to be this, got to be this, got to be this. You see, every one of these qualities, this isn't personality specific. This isn't about your stature. This isn't about your attire, okay? This isn't about your charisma. It's about your character, okay? Because that's what God uses to make a difference in the world. Men and women of character who embody these seven characteristics. Hebrews 12, 1 talks about leaders running perseverance, okay? It's a race that they run with perseverance. Now, we've looked about, we're talking about what leadership is. Talk about what God's doing in the world with some qualities of leaders. Now, how do we connect that with actually leaving a legacy? Well, let me give you a few thoughts here. Number one, uh, from your causes versus people. When I think of your generation, okay, every generation has a lot of strengths and every generation has a lot of weaknesses. Y'all agree? Now, I'm a little different generation. I'm 20 years older than you all are. And my generation has a lot of strengths. My generation has even more weaknesses especially when I look at your all's generation, okay? I see so many strengths that your generation has that might have it. But let me kind of give you one strength and one weakness, okay, of your generation specifically. And uh, it comes back to this idea of causes versus people. One of the cool things about your generation is you're very passionate about causes. Y'all see that? Okay, you see, basically you see the brokenness in this world, okay? And you're not content with leaving it that way. My generation didn't care. Okay, they saw all the, the brokenness in this world. It's like, well, so be it. I'm going to get mine. You know, my generation didn't care. Your generation is committed to a cause. Your generation wants to see change happen. But here's what I see as the weakness in your generation. For as committed as your generation is to causes, sometimes it stops with that. It stops with just identifying or vocalizing the cause. And a cause in and of itself doesn't change the world. Okay? We have to take it beyond the cause and actually make a difference in the lives of individual people. Okay? The way we make a difference in the world is not by being vocal about a cause, but it's actually about investing and making a difference in people. And you see the difference between the two? When we go to the Bible, obviously Jesus is the greatest leader that history's ever known. And that's indisputable. Okay? I've lived in Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world. Guess who they recognize? Jesus as the greatest leader in the world. Okay? I've spent a lot of time in India, the largest Hindu country in the world. I've been there multiple times around Christmas time. Guess what they're doing? They're celebrating Christmas. Okay? Because they recognize, hey, this central holiday about Jesus is one of the most important celebrations that there is. 
our entire world, guess what year it is? This entire world, 2022. What does that trace itself back to? Okay? The birth, the advent of Jesus. You see, our whole world is, is shaped by Christ, even if people aren't following Christ. He's the greatest leader that's ever existed. Okay? But when you look at Jesus' life, what you don't see as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is you don't just see Jesus being passionate about a cause. What you see him doing is investing in people. And so what you can summarize Jesus' ministry this way. You can say Jesus loved the world. He taught the crowds. But at the end of the day, he trained 12 individuals. He loved the world. He was, he, there was a cause that he was about, right? And he taught people. But the vast majority of Jesus' time was committed to investing in people. Because Jesus knew the way to change the world was by investing in individuals and helping individuals, men and women, helping their lives be transformed. Who in turn do the same? You see, this was Jesus' approach. It was disciple-making and multiplication. This was his method to changing the world. And so, an example of this, I'll give you one story. It's a guy named Howard Davis. It's a picture of Howard. Howard was in the Navy previous to World War II. And Howard started following Christ when he was in the Navy because a guy on the ship with him uh, in World War II led him to Christ, discipled him, helped him learn to walk with God. Howard began to have a heart for others. He wanted to make a difference. And there was another guy that was on the ship with him. His name was Skip Gray. And through their friendship and their interactions on the ship as they were deployed in the Pacific, Howard actually had an impact on Skip, led Skip to Christ, and began to disciple him, began to help him grow, help him begin to understand what it means to follow Christ. Well, after World War II, Skip uh, got out of the Navy and moved to Birmingham, Alabama. When he was in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the guys that he began to become friends with and to shape and really influence spiritually was a guy named Chuck Singletary. Chuck was a businessman there in Birmingham, Alabama. And what Skip did is Skip just kind of came alongside Chuck. And all the things that he had learned from Howard, he began to invest in the life of Chuck and help Chuck really begin to grow and mature in his faith. Now Chuck, as he was maturing in his faith, uh, met a college student at a university there in Birmingham named Curtis Tanner. This is Curtis uh, right here. And as he kind of befriended and, and kind of connected with Curtis, and he was a businessman, Curtis was a college student, he began to help Curtis understand what it meant to follow Christ and how to grow and mature in his faith. And he began to pass on into Curtis's life the things that Skip had poured in his life and that Howard had poured into Skip's life. Okay, Curtis, in turn, one of the guys that he had an impact on was a guy named David Dunn. Okay, David was on the baseball team at that same university. So they were friends, ran around with each other. And Curtis began to disciple David, began to help David grow spiritually in the same way that Chuck had helped him grow. David, as he began to grow in his faith, began to have a heart for others. And being a baseball player, he kind of ran around with some of the other athletes that were there at his university. And one guy that he got connected with was actually a basketball player who was also in the Sigma Nu fraternity named Brian Lewis. And so this is Brian Right here, this is his kids and his wife as well. Brian was on the basketball team, and David began to kind of take him under his wing, disciple him, helped him to grow and mature in his faith. And Brian, as he began to grow and mature in his faith, began to have a heart for others as well. Brian later graduated from college, he moved to a different city. When he was in that different city, uh, being a former athlete, he was working out a lot. And one day in one of the weight rooms where he was working out, he met another guy that was playing college basketball in that city. His name was David Burns. And Brian began to share his faith with David. David wasn't a Christian at the time. And he began to help David understand who Christ was and what Christ had done for him. David, after a period of months of reading the Bible, thinking about himself, decided that he was going to follow Christ as well. Okay? And Brian began to mentor and disciple David. Well, David then graduated from college, moved to a different city, and it was actually David who I met back in 1995 when I was 19 years old, and he was the first guy that began to open up the Bible to me, began to help me understand who Christ was, what God's purpose was, you know, and how God's love had driven him and motivated him to want to redeem, reorient, and restore the world. And in 1995, as a 19-year-old, I saw my need for Christ. And David not only helped me after a series of months investigate my faith and own my faith, he went on to kind of be a mentor to me. You know, and is still a good friend of, me, of mine to this day. 
Now I say all this to say I've never met Howard Davis. I don't even know if he's still alive. Okay, I've heard about him from Skip. Skip's one of the guys that I have gotten uh, to meet. Okay, but all I know is this: is that Howard gave his life to individuals, and over the course of the years, that trickle somehow made it to me as a 19-year-old that was going to college, wasn't looking for God, didn't care about God, wanted nothing to do with God. But his faithfulness to invest in people, you know, one person at a time, one individual at a time, one generation at a time, the effect of his life has been immeasurable. Because it's not just one chain of individuals. You know, it's a whole web that just keeps going and keeps going. And there's tens of thousands of people you know, in this world, walking with God, and it comes back to one guy on a Navy ship reaching out with one friend, you know, that he was in the midst of World War II with. And this is how God works, okay? This is how God changes the world. Not one cause at a time, but one person at a time. And you see the exponential effect of this. Let me kind of give you an example here. Imagine you wanted to make a difference in this world. Okay? Here's one way you could do it. You could try to gather 10,000 people every single day. Tell them about God. Tell them about their need for God. The next day, you get 10,000 more people. You get a big arena at the Sprint Center, you know, right next door here. I think it holds over 10,000. But if you could fill that up every day, you could tell them, hey, this is how God can impact your life. Okay? That'd be pretty impressive if you could do that. 10,000 people. And they all respond. They all say, okay, I'm on what you got. Okay, sign me up. I'm following God. Now. That would be impressive. That would be a significant amount of influence, right? If you did that every single day for the next 60 years of your life, this is the breadth of your influence. It would be 219 million people. That's a pretty impressive legacy, would you say? I'd say that. I mean, if any of our lives actually impacted 219 million people, that would be pretty impressive. That would be a legacy. That would be great leadership. But let me contrast that with a different approach, okay? Instead of trying to impact 10,000 people every single day, not taking a day off for the rest of your life, what if over this next year you just impacted one person? What if you prayed and said, God, could you use me in the life of one guy? Could you use me in the life of one girl? That one person on my floor, that one person on my team, that one person that I'm part of that club with, that one person in that house, what if God used you to impact one person this next year? Help them own their faith. Really experience God's grace in their life. And then you were going, not just help them start to follow Christ, but really help them mature in their faith. What if you did that with one person over this next year? Well, at the end of this next year, there would be then two people, right? You and that one person that you impacted. But then what if the next year, the two of you did that for one more person? It would look like this. One would become two. Two would become four, four would become eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, etc. If you were to do that process on, just impacting one person a year, if you were to do that and really be committed to discipling people, if you were to do that for the next 33 years, let me show you how the math works out there. If you were to do this for 33 years, just one person a year, the breadth of your influence would be eight billion. 589,934,592, which is currently a couple hundred thousand, a couple hundred million more than the current population in the world. You see why it was genius for Jesus to take the approach that he did? You see, his plan to redeem, reorient, and restore the world which he's still committed to, and he will bring to fruition, it happens one individual in one life at a time. It's the way it works, and it's really the only way that it works. Okay? And this is what it really means for us to have a view and approach to leadership that actually leads a legacy. Let me give you a few action steps as we kind of wrap up. The first one is this. I want to encourage you to determine your aim in life. In other words, I just want you to ask the question, you know, and, and really, really think about this. Am I going to live to be successful? Is that really going to be my aim in life? Or am I going to live to have a life that's significant? Okay? But you got to make that choice because those two paths will diverge. Okay? If you're going to live for your own success, that's going to take you down a different road than a life that says, I really want my life to be significant. 
Okay? You've got to decide on the front end of life. Okay? Which of those paths you're going to embrace. I love what William James, probably the second greatest philosopher other than Jonathan Edwards that America's ever created. He was at Harvard in the 1800s. He says this. He says, the only thing worth giving your life to is to that which will outlast it. Your life's value is not in its donation. It's not in what you do, but it's in its duration. It's in will it last. Okay? The value of your life is not found in just what you do now, not in the splash, but it's in the ripple effects. Okay? Will that legacy continue? And so you've got to make a choice. Determine your aim in life now. Second, assess your life by the seven character qualities. We're not going to take time to do this right now, but I want you to take all seven of those qualities. Okay, maybe in the next few days you review your notes from the conference. And I just want you to put a one, two, and three beside those qualities. And I just want you to have a little time of self-reflection. And with each of those qualities, I want you to determine, one, this is not really true of me right now. Two, this is somewhat true of me right now. Or three, I think this is significantly true of me right now. And just be honest with yourself. Are each of those qualities, are they not true of you? Are they somewhat true of you? Are they significantly true of you? And just to say, hey, where are, the, where, where are strengths in my life? And where are areas I really need to focus in on and develop? Number three, I want to encourage you to take steps to mature and get trained. Take steps to mature and get trained. Again, this is the time of your life. You have, you have more opportunity and time now than you'll ever have the rest of your life to grow, to develop, and mature. Friends my age, they look at people in your shoes and they say, I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back and have opportunities to be in the Bible studies that y'all have back on your campus. I wish I could go back and be able to come to the conferences that you all get to be a part. I wish I could go back and invest my summer going overseas or getting developed and getting trained and getting equipped of how to study the Bible and how to get that goes. I wish I could go back. I wish someone would have mentored me and actually take me under their wing and help me grow when I was in college. See, men and women in their 40s now are so jealous of the opportunities that you have that they don't get. But here's the thing. Those things are on a clock, okay? And the opportunities that you have now, you won't have them in two, three, four years. So take advantage of them while you got them, okay? Make decisions now that you won't regret when you're my age, okay? Don't make decisions now that you look back and be like, dude, that was a waste of a Christmas break. Why did I do that every Tuesday night instead of growing my faith? Why did I go back to the country club and lifeguard for a fifth time when I could have done something more significant? You know? Make decisions now that you won't regret in 20 years. Don't make decisions now that you look back and kick yourself for. Okay? This is the time to mature and get trained. And the last thing I would just say is this, is begin where God has you today. Begin where God has you today. See, leadership, believing in a legacy, it's not something you do after college. It's something you begin to live right now. And let me give you an example. This is one of my best friends. His name is Brad. Okay? Brad's one of my best friends in college. He was a groomsman at my wedding. I was a groomsman at his. Brad died three years ago after four years of battling brain cancer. Okay? He left his wife. He left his four kids that are here. One of my best friends. Brad was very successful in life. CEO of a company, you know, had success with everything he did. And yet, if you were to ask Brad, I got to spend time with him in some of his last days. You ask him, Brad, what mattered in life? And he knew he was going to pass away. He knew he, 44 was his, that was his end. And if you were to be able to talk with Brad, like I got to for the last 27 years, you know, since we became friends, Brad would say, hey, the thing that mattered in life was not success. It was significance. It was about making a difference in the lives of others. Being a part of God's plan to redeem, reorient, and restore this world. And Brad was a guy that though he was successful, that wasn't his aim. That wasn't his passion. That wasn't his purpose. He didn't want to just live a successful life. He wanted to live a significant life. A couple of weeks before he died, all of us who were kind of best friends in college, we were all in like a, a discipleship group together, and, and man, just had so many great memories. We got together, and we decided, hey, we're going to celebrate Brad's life before his funeral. We knew he was going to die in a matter of days. Okay, but just a few weeks ago, we said, hey, let's get together. We came from all over the country to spend one last time together. 
and to celebrate the significant life that he lived and the legacy that it resulted in. You see, we didn't talk about him being the CEO of the company. We didn't talk about his swimming pool. We didn't talk about his grand countertops. We didn't talk about his car. We didn't talk about his accolades. We didn't talk about his trophies. You know what we talked about? We talked about his legacy. We talked about the difference that his life made in the lives of others. And at Brad's funeral just a week ago, these were some of the men that stood up and got to share. This is Bobby Goldie. Bobby was an active when Brad was pledged in Sigma Chi. Brad led Bobby to Christ and discipled him before Bobby went on. And Bobby got up and talked about how God has changed his entire life and legacy because Brad was committed to living a significant life back when he was 19 years old. Next up is Daryl Diebold and Chris Nixon, the next two guys. They were both on Brad's floor when he was an RA as a sophomore. Both guys that Brad led to Christ and disciple and helped grow. And they stood up and they talked about how the whole trajectory of their life was different as a result of Brad's investment and leadership in their life. The last guy from the mask, his name's Kyle. He got up there and said, I didn't know Brad in college. But the Sigma Chi president named Patrick Lewis was led to Christ by Brad and discipled by Brad. And Patrick discipled this guy, who discipled this guy, who discipled this guy, who discipled this guy. And that guy, a few years ago, led me to Christ and discipled me. And he says, I'm standing up here because Brad was a leader who left a legacy back when he was in college. And 23 years later, I'm part of the ripple effect of that. I'm part of Brad's legacy. And that's the cool thing about Brad's life. His life's over, okay? But his legacy continues. And again, if you could ask Brad, you know, in some of his nine words, it's like, hey, it was worth giving my life to something that's significant, not just to success. You live for success, you might become a legend. But you live for significance, and it results in a legacy. Okay? And that's what God wants for you. That's what God has for you and for I. And it's feasible for all of us. And that's a life that leads to no regrets, okay? We're going to talk about this more tonight at our main session. So this is going to help us continue to think about this. I want to wrap up with a few books here. I recommend I think the bookstore will be open, you know, maybe for uh, tonight or tomorrow or something like that. These are some great books that continue to think about this thing. But guys, I, I would just say that, you know, success may come, may not. It doesn't matter. But the potential of your life in this room is significant, for significance, is immeasurable. God is redeeming this world. He is reorienting this world. He is restoring this world. Okay? He wants to do that. Let me pray for us in the world. God, thanks for all the people here. God, thanks for your grace on our lives, Lord. And that, God, that we are part of this world, God, and you have redeemed and reoriented. And you're restoring us, God. You're not just making us new. You're making us better than new. And God, you give us the amazing privilege of being a part of what you're doing in this world. God, what an honor. God, help us to leverage it for all it's worth. And God, we don't, we don't care if we're recognized. We don't care if we're successful. God, but help us to live lives that at the end of the day really do have significance and are a part of the beauty that you're creating in this world. We thank you for Jesus, God. It's because of him that we can taste this grace. And in his name we pray. Amen.